Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Maine Education Matters. I'm your host, Matt Gerard-Card. Thank you so very much once again for taking your time, your precious time to stay and put this into your earbuds or earphones or car speakers or however else you might be listening to it. I don't know. There might be other ways out there that I'm unaware of. Uh, my name is Matt Gerard-Card. I am your intrepid, stalwart, ever-present host for this jaunt down Augusta's lane of edgisl of edgisla legislation legislation and legislation and whatever other kind of you, you could just put any kind of letter in front of it i think isn't that how language works it's all subjective we make it up as we go because all words are literally made up thank you again we are going to be this week uh this episode is going to be focusing on the week of march 14th and the upcoming public hearings and one work session that's on its way that will be happening next week so let's get we're going to we're, we're going to start by the doing the public hearings going to preview those let you know of what um what bills are coming forward so that if you wanted to prepare any kind of uh, testimony, if you wanted to send any thoughts or ideas to your local representative or to the education committee, now is the time to do it for these particular bills. I will say that in my ever, ever so busy life, I keep track of these bills. I keep track of all the bills that are coming before the education committee. And right now I'm tracking over 103 education bills. And as of right now, only six have gone through work session and it's middle of March and the legislation, they, they have to get wrapped up pretty soon. Mid April, I believe is their date to get this stuff going into the house and going forward. So you'd expect at some point that the legislative committee would start to ramp things up. Well, that's next week. Because as I'm looking at things just for next week alone, they'll be hearing nine bills and doing a work session on another four. So they're really starting to uh, they're starting to warm up. They're starting to get into things. And then the week after that, oh boy, do they have a lot. Um, start the week of the 21st, 21, they have four bills, 22nd. They have nine bills, if I'm counting right. Nine bills on the 22nd. They're actually starting at 1030 that particular day because they got a lot going on. And on the 23rd, they have four more bills. So uh, four plus four plus nine is more than I can count. So they're starting to really ramp up and they have to because they have to get these things heard. So let's get into what's happening next week. We're going to start off on March 14th, uh, public hearing starting at 1 p.m. The first is LD number 335, an act to improve educator certification response times, presented by Senator Rafferty of York. Did I say Rafferty? Rafferty of York and a few co-sponsors on here, many of which are on the education committee. This bill establishes five ed education specialists, three positions within the DOE in order to increase response times for educator certification to provide oversight of the certification process effective October 1st, 2023. That is this year, calendar year. And for the 2023-24 uh, school year or but sorry, fiscal year, you know, honestly, folks, sometimes talking is hard. Communicating ain't easy. 
There's a song from a while ago that something else ain't easy, but I just can't think of what it is. Anyway, the 23-24 fiscal year will be adding an additional $421,000 to that particular uh, budget, and the 24-25 uh, fiscal year will be adding an additional 561000 and $19 here, $80 there, so I'm rounding. So this is going to be adding to the overall budget and five positions to increase response times for ed educator certification. Anyone who's been through the certification process knows it can take a while. And this is obviously a way to say, hey, let's let's speed this up. And any any way that we can get more teachers or to streamline the, the means by which educators and aspiring educators can get into our system well, I think every school district needs that. We need as much help as we can get these days. So that's the, that's the first one. And you'll notice um, there's a, a general theme of three of the bills for this particular work session has to do with certification and or being recertified, which let's get into the next one, LD712, an act to extend or waive requirements for certain teaching certificates presented by Representative Bell of Yarmouth. According to the summary of this bill, uh, allows the Commissioner of Education to grant an extension of a conditional teaching certificate in the case of extenuating circumstances. This request for an extension must be accompanied by, of course, supporting documentation, obviously. The bill also allows the uh, Education Commissioner to waive a requirement for a teacher certificate if the individual seeking issuance of the certificate holds a National Board certification from the National Board for Professional Teaching Standards. The bill directs the State Board of Education to amend its rules about the requirements for a conditional teaching certificate and to allow for a holder of the National Board certification from the National Board for Professional Teaching Standards to be granted a waiver for a student teaching requirement. So it kind of, if you're going to become, if you, if you hold the National Board certification, then the Commissioner of Education can waive the requirement for a teaching certificate. Hmm. Interesting. I know the requirements for becoming a National Board Certified Teacher are um, incredibly rigorous. And I also know that there are many, there's there's laws that state where people can get an additional stipend for being nationally board certified. What I'm not so sure about are the um, recertifications of being nationally board certified. Is that just a one-time thing or do you have to get recertified? Is it one of those things where, you know, you, you go online and you get like, I'm going to go become an Apple educator. There you go. You're an Apple educator forever or whatever. Do you have to, re do you have to renew that? Whereas the education certificates in the state do have renewal requirements. So I think that's a question that I would want to hear and see answered. And um, that's one of the reasons why I listen to pub the public testimony and work session, because a lot of those times these similar questions will be asked and get brought up. Regardless, another way in which to not only encourage people in the profession, but to also say, and to encourage, but also to recognize the importance, the rigor, and the excellence that goes in to um, undergoing the National Board Certified process. So let's hear how that goes. 
LD, next one, LD 753, an act to allow retired teachers and educational technicians to be recertified. Again, presented by Senator Rafferty of York, co-sponsored by this uh, President Jackson of Aroostook. This bill allows a professional teacher certificate or educational technician certificate to be reissued to a teacher or technician who has retired and whose certificate has lapsed. I'm generally speaking, like again, let's get people back into, if they want to come back into teaching, all right, let's get those things back. Is this a full-on like professional certificate or is this a conditional certificate? If, if their certificate has lapsed, let's just say they, they retired and they've been gone for five years and want to come back into teaching, how... Is how, what's the what's the what's the time period here? Um, now, for retired teachers, it says that you know the commissioner may issue a professional teacher certificate to a person who is receiving retirement benefit, who is employed for at least ten years by public schools, been receiving retirement benefit for no more than ten years, and who immediately prior to receiving that benefit possessed an active professional teaching certificate that subsequently lapsed ten years who had been employed by 10 years, receiving retirement benefit for no more than 10 years. So a person could have been retired, be retired for 10 years. And then if they want to come back to teaching, like that, they get their educational certification back. Now, the things that we knew about teaching and learning and brain research, cognitive load theory, and... For example, like teaching mathematics and how to teach mathematics, for example, there's been a lot of new things that have been learned along the way in the last 10 years. How would the retired teacher coming back into the fold be required to or be make sure that they're up to date? And that's a question that I would have in terms of um, understanding how coming back into the fold. And again, I'm all for having certified. I'm all for having professional and experienced educators and experienced people to come teach, to come be in the classrooms. We need them and we need to streamline and make it easier and um, more accessible. I'm all for that. I also want to make sure that the people who are educating our students are not just strong in a content area, but are also strong in instructional effectiveness, strategy effectiveness, assessment strategies, ways to progress monitor and measure for learning versus just measuring for achievement. They are two different things. And if a person's been out of it, yes, they had a certificate before, but how are they keeping up to date with what has been happening in terms of educational research, in terms of educational excellence, and those things that ways by which our profession continues to grow. Um, that would be something that I would want to know. And that would be something that I want in our, all of our educators and all of our ed techs, um, a means by which to measure, monitor, and show that they have been keeping up with whatever new things come around. And that I mean, think about it, think about the way the world five years ago. Uh, and if you think about the world five years ago, uh, which was what 2018 right there was no consistent or commonly even accepted means by which to do any kind of virtual learning remember around that time and around that time it was uh 
there were one of the districts in the state of Maine was experimenting with having these remote options for snow days, and it was highly controversial. Five years later, remote learning isn't as much of an uncommon thing. People don't like it. People don't want to do it, and it's gotten a really bad rap. I argue it got a bad rap because people, most people who tried to do remote learning or did remote learning, and I'm, again, I'm making a gross generalization here, but from my observations, from what I've seen, from what I've heard, what I've talked to people, from what I've listened to when people say these things, they transferred what they would do in a regular classroom and tried to copy that into a virtual environment. That's not how a virtual environment, virtual learning works. And granted, no one had expertise in teaching and virtual learning. So I would not say that virtual learning or remote learning didn't work. I'd say, I'm not sure we did it properly. Because I think it can work. I think it would work. I think it could work if we were to understand how the brain works, the learning that needs to happen, and the systems that we have, and the means by which we are in creating highly engaging tasks. <clears throat> highly engaging tasks. And within those highly engaging tasks, um, what are the best practices that go into ensuring those engaging tasks happen? And then what are the conditions for learning that we have established? So five years ago, that was never a thing. That wasn't even a real uh, option for most, for like the vast majority of the population. Well, now any student who's been in the education system for the last five years has undergone that. That's changed the game. That's changed things in a way. So if we're, if things are going to change significantly, if a teacher's been out of teaching for 10 years, how are they going to come back in and know those best strategies? Know those, know those uh, new skills that they're gonna need? That's the questions that I have in order to make sure that our teachers and supporter people who are gonna come in and support our schools and support our students with the best interest in mind, that they are the also the best qualified. All right. Those are the three certification bills for the 14th. There's one other that is LD 829, which is an act to improve behavioral health support for students in public schools presented by Representative Crafts of Newcastle, several co-sponsors. Uh, the summary of this bill, it does the following. Number one, it requires school social workers spend at least 80% of their time providing direct services to students. Two, requires SAUs to employ an educator at each school in the SAU who has completed a nationally board certified assistant behavior analyst training and provides that the state must pay all costs associated with the training and provide an annual stipend of $3,000 for up to three years for each educator who completes the training. Three, it provides that for the purpose of the calculation of salary and benefit costs in the school funding formula, the elementary school and middle school level student to guidance staff ratio is decreased to 250 to one. It also adds a student to school student rate student to school social worker ratio of 250 to one for the elementary school, middle school, and high school levels. Requires school social workers spend at least 80% of their time providing direct student to service services to students. I, why why wouldn't they? Here's why they wouldn't. In a school, in a school system, right now, more so than 
five years ago or so, schools are strapped for people. And oftentimes what I've experienced and seen and heard about many schools is if there are a number of, of staff who are sick or out of school for illness and whatnot, the building administration is doing whatever they possibly can to keep the school open. And people get shuffled around and moved around and put into places as substitutes and as and to support the school to make sure that they stay open. And by me open, I mean in person. This bill requires the school social workers spend at least 80% of their time providing direct services to students. That is going to limit the building administration. It's going to limit the functionality of the actual building itself. Because that's just the reality of how things are right now. And until that changes and until we have a flood of people, of substitutes, of educational technicians and specialists and interventionists and the like to be able to come into our schools to, you know, balance it and to support it so that you know, when the ship starts to spring a leak, we have plenty of people who can not only fix the leak, but can keep the ship afloat and going forward. That's what that's my worry with this bill. I mean, I'm, I'm all for having social workers spend at least most of the time. They should be. That's what they should be doing. Uh, requiring the SAUs to employ an educator at each school in the SAU who's completed a national board certified assistant behavior and analyst training. Again, I, I see the intent of this and I appreciate it. And I think that it's a wonderful idea. I wonder about the logistics and how realistically can we do that? This can be very it will, this will be much easier to achieve in the more populated and more urban areas of the state of Maine. Not so much in the rural. And it's going to be harder there. Just It's just going to be harder. Um, so, interesting to see what happens here. All right. Let's get on to the March 15th, which is the next day. So, March 14th. For, for, for uh, bills, March 15th, they're going to do some confirmation hearings at 10 a.m. And then they're going to do public hearings, five bills before the hearing, before the committee. And let's get into it. L, uh, on one o'clock, an emergency bill, uh, for those of you who don't remember, um, an emergency bill is one that goes to the committee. And once it gets uh, passed through the, the houses and then signed into law, it becomes law automatically, immediately, right away. Most bills require about a 60-day uh, wait period for it to come into play. So if, if the bill is signed on you know, July 1st, then it's going to come into play like more like September 1st, something like that. That's how it mostly works. And But emergency bills, right away. This uh, The first one, LD-213, an act to maintain the authority of the Maine School for Marine Science, Technology, Transportation, and Engineering presented by Representative Campbell of Orrington and a couple of co-sponsors. Uh, what this bill does is repeals provisions of the law that terminate all powers, duties, and authorities of the main school for marine science, technology, transportation, and engineering, and require the school to reorganize from a public magnet school to an educational-based, to an educational program-based model 90 days after the adjournment of the first regular session of the 131st legislature. Um, going back for a few years, this is, has an emergency preamble, five whereases, 
I, I, we always like a whereas. We always like the whereas is because it, it lets you know that there's something important coming, that we believe these things. These are whereas in the judgment of the legislature, these facts create an emergency within the meaning of the Constitution of Maine and require the following legislation is immediately necessary for the preservation of public peace, health, and safety now. Therefore, you know, that's, that's a whereas. Gotta love a whereas. All right. So, uh, terminate the uh, provision, uh, repeals the provision that terminate the powers. So for being a, uh, reorganized from a public magnet school to an educational ba uh, program based model. Uh, this one is going to get a lot of public testimony. Anytime there's stuff about public magnet schools, charter schools, anything like that, you're going to start seeing people coming out and say, nope, keep it a school, keep it a school, keep it a school. And I want to know the reasons why they want to do this. I want to know. I want to hear. Uh, but there's going to be a lot of testimony in that one. Next one for that particular day, LD 669, dude. An act to create the public art fund. Presented by a representative Collings of Portland, several co-sponsors this bill creates the public art fund to be administered by the main arts commission and authorizes the fund to be used to provide grants to public entities for public art this is one of those cultural bills isn't it it's education and cultural affairs committee but i like art i like art so what does this do um a public art fund. The fund is administered by the uh, main arts commission and then money deposited. But uh, the fund could be used to provide a grant to a public enemy. <laughs> yes. To Chuck D flavor Flav, and all of the, the, like, um, yeah, good Lord. Talking is hard. All words are made up money deposited in the fund and the earnings on that Money remain in the fund to be provided to a grant to the public entity, including a school, library, or government office that applies for a grant for the installation or performance of art that is publicly accessible. For the purposes of awarding grants, public art must be construed broadly and may include a mural, sculpture, painting, audio, or visual presentation, digital presentation, musical, or theatrical performance, demonstration of or instruction in an activity or performing a task or lecture. Maybe this isn't just a cultural affairs thing, because if you if you if you pay attention to anything that's happening in schools and school boards and whatnot, this day there's been a lot of discussion about removing certain topics about what is obscene. There's a bill in front of the education committee about obscenity, what that all means. I'm I'm looking forward to hearing what they have to say about that. Well, now we're awarding a public grant for public art. It must be construed broadly what is considered art and where does that line get drawn. That will be a fun one to pay attention to. What this fund does, though, is it, it adds to this 23-24 uh, fiscal year a $6 million uh, boost to the fund. Uh, this provides one-time funds for grants to public entities for the installation or performance of art that is publicly accessible. I would hope that a lot of the ed orgs too would go out there and say, make sure that the ed committee knows that the wealthier, many of the wealthier communities 
and their school districts, they'll hire and have people like grant writers on there who will be able to go and chase down these grants and write these grants and get them in in a timely fashion. Many of the more rural, not as wealthy communities who have very small staff, who, you know, a, a district administrative position might be a, you know, jack of all trades in some ways. And they have to find and fit that into their everyday life along with the 90 million other things that they're trying to juggle. How is that equitable? So how is access to this fund going to be equitable? Especially if it's only a one-time fund. So some questions there, definitely for that. Looking forward to hearing that one because I think it has some real impact on some other areas that are being heard in this this, uh, legislative session. LD830 resolved directing the main community college system to study providing on-campus housing on all campuses, presented by Representative Hobbs of Wells, several co-sponsors. This resolve directs the main community college system to study providing on-campus housing for students focusing in particular on campuses that do not offer housing currently. The system must consider the cost of constructing housing, available space on campuses, the cost to students, other infrastructure, and staff that would be necessary to support housing, alternate housing options, and any other issues the system feels are appropriate. The system must report its findings and any suggested legislation to the Joint Standing Committee on Education and Cultural Affairs no later than December 6, 2023. Find that housing. What's it going to take to get housing? If we want to get more people to go to the community college and, and uh, post-secondary, you might need, especially given a state like ours that is so broad and so widespread, you have to find find housing. Is it there? Do you have it? So uh, they're going to study that, and it's a resolve. It, next one up, uh, LD881, another resolve directing the University of Maine system to study the, the development of a course regarding the use of manufactured wood products presented by representative Zager of Portland and a few other co-sponsors. And what this resolve does is it directs the university of Maine system to study the development of a course for mid career architects and engineers on incorporating manufactured wood products into their work. And again, this is reports due by December 6th. I'm, I'm just, I'm so curious as to the specificity of this that study the development of a course for mid-career architects and engineers on incorporating manufactured wood products into their work. This feels like there's something behind it pushing it. I don't know what, and it just fe- it's a feeling. I have, I have nothing out, no evidence. I'm just reporting to you what the bill is and going on a feeling. That's all I do here. Other than that, if I were to actually do some actual like investigative, investigative work on this, that would be actually uh, work. And... Um, I'm not about, I'm not about that. I have a long history of trying to avoid work. So curious to see why this one is coming forward. The final one, if you'll notice, there's been a kind of a common thread about the University of Maine or community college systems here is LD897, an act regarding the University of Maine systems hiring practices presented by Representative Collings of Portland, several co-sponsors. And this bill establishes requirements for the hiring process at the University of Maine system. The bill prohibits a person involved in the hiring process for administrative positions from being required to sign a non-disclosure agreement 
requires that all human resources standards and policies that govern the hiring process apply equally to all positions and may not be waived or modified. Requires the trustees of the University of Maine system to establish an external third-party review process to ensure that the requirements are met and ensure compliance with all applicable human resources and equal employment opportunity laws and requirements. Prohibits a person involved in the hiring process for administrative positions from being required to sign an NDA. And requires that all human resources... I've, I've never... I've gone through the hiring process a few times. I've never been asked to sign an NDA. Why? I, I, don't, I don't understand why that. So, you know, a lot of these bills often come up because something has happened at some point And, well, oh, what was happening here? Why was that happening? I don't know. This is very, I just, I just, I'm, I don't know about this one. This seems like a, an internal kind of thing, but I'm just curious as to what's driving this. Uh, and why a, an organization would need to sign an NDA during the hiring process. Is it because you don't want to share the questions you're being asked? I mean, then I would assume the questions are going to be pretty straightforward and com common. But anyway, that is it for the public hearings on March 14th and March 15th. All right, let's get into the work sessions for March 16th, uh, 2023. There will be four bills that will be heard. Oh, we've already previewed these. And I'm going to go quickly through a few of them. And um, then we're going to dive a little bit deeper into a couple others. So two of the bills that will be heard, LD570, which is a resolve to provide information to main school administrators and main communities about financial advantages of modern wood heating. That's just to resolve to study it. Not too much testimony on it, but it's again, they're going to resolve to study it. They're, they're, they're to study the advantages of it. Uh, the testimony was not that much, but a half of it, four, two of the four, were from uh, organizations that are focused on wood and lumber. So they're, of course, in support of it. So we'll see what happens at the, at the work session for that. The other was an act to assist schools with heating and transportation fuel costs during the school year. That's LD 386. That's an emergency bill. And all the testimony that I saw was in favor of it. So um, we'll see what happens at the work sessions, and I'll keep you up to date as they're, as the votes come in. Let's talk about two others. First is LD100, an act to require an annual financial audit of a private school approved for tuition purposes, presented by Rebecca, Representative Millette of Cape Elizabeth. Now, there weren't too many pieces of testimony that were given here, about 10 and I can say that it was pretty evenly split across the oh, yay or nay. And what I find interesting is who was the yay and who was the nay. People who are saying that private schools, that a financial audit that should be required and given to the DOE for public record, if a school receives public funds, they should present or provide an information about their financial, how they're spending their money, or at least the taxpayer money uh, on students, et cetera. They should, they should do that. that in that level of fiscal financial transparency. The main, aside from the representative legislator who, who, who sponsored this, the MEA, 
Maine Education Association, the Maine School Management Association, and the Maine Department of Education are all in favor of this. Opposed to this are the Maine Policy, Maine Policy Institute and the Maine Association of Independent Schools. The four are saying, yeah, if you're using public funds, we should they should be held to the same standard as other schools, whether it's a fully public school, a 60-40 school, or a private school receiving some public funds, doesn't matter. They should be held to the same expectations and auditing standards. And the Policy Institute and the Association of Independent Schools side is more like, yeah, but still we're private and we we do this we do this ourselves. We do this internally. You're trying to catch us on something, so no. And I find it very interesting, a very interesting conversation. Um because on the one side, you have this whole conversation of let's be transparent. Let's have this level of transparency out there and make sure everything's crystal clear that everyone can see we believe in transparency. And one side's like, no, 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 we do this. We're good. Trust us. If you were to have that same conversation about curriculum, one side is saying, be transparent, send it all out, make sure everyone knows what we're doing, be as completely transparent, won't list and all that will be transparent, transparent, transparency. And the other side is like, no, trust us, we're doing it right. It's a very interesting to me look at how looking at a at a, at a particular topic when one becomes to have to do with finances or does it have to do with what's being taught in learning, how both opinions can crisscross and be in the opposite direction when it's, they're all arguing for the same thing, transparency, transparency, or no, trust us, we're doing it, trust us, we're doing it. I find that fascinating. And it's one of the things that I love about our system is that we can, we can have those conversations and that, you know what, you can look at something one way and argue for a particular point of view and that's because it makes sense and that it's legal over here and you can also argue against that same kind of concept because it doesn't make sense in this particular capacity you don't have if you're saying I'm, I'm all for transparency we have to be transparent all the time for everything we don't have to go down that road what i'm saying though is that i find it very interesting that if you just switch change the lens ever so slightly those arguments and the people kind of switch they they move to the other side of the uh proverbial uh, arguments item they just then they just they they they're arguing for their opponent that yeah so you get it by now i've i've done that all right i find that interesting finally uh for today i don't know we're kind of going a bit long um ld 253, an act to add health and physical education requirements to the high school diploma standards. This is an interesting one because this is the one that said two years. So several years ago when proficiency-based diplomas were all the rage um, and when they got completely torn asunder, the, the, the statute changed to say, you know, you need for like health, you know, this many number of years or meeting standards, the required standards. That's what happened. That's what the current standard is. That's what the current law says. And it says it for, you know, several different content areas, but health and physical education isn't in there. 
Neither is visual performing arts. Neither is world languages. Neither is computer science. All, all of which are equally as important. Now, there's, there's, there was a tremendous amount of testimony here. Uh, and this is one of those, another one of those moments where, you, where there's a lot of individual people are saying, we should be requiring this. This should absolutely be a requirement. 100%. And then there are the ed organizations, which are either mostly, for example, the Main Principles Association, Vote, they urge the committee ought not to pass. Quote, as with other diploma standard bills, Maine is a local control state and is up to the local school boards to determine what standards are necessary for students to demonstrate in addition to the minimum Maine DOE diploma standards. End quote. I find this argument flawed because what this bill is exactly trying to do is to increase the minimum, increase the minimum requirement. Maine school management, uh, neither for nor against. They support the concept of keeping our students physically active but they are consistently opposed to curriculum mandates. Is this a curriculum mandate or is this a standard to be met? An expectation, a minimum of expectations that, 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 that schools must provide for these students. This is not saying that within the health and physical education uh, system, you must do ABC, XYZ. This is saying, no, 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 the health and physical education standards are here and we believe that in order for graduation to happen, there should be some requirements for this. It's on the books as, as being required content. And because it's required content, we should also hold that accountable. The Main Curriculum Leaders Association, also neither for nor against, they support it. and they're, But they, they bring up another point, which is that this two-year diploma requirement could have a significant, uh, not only budgetary impact on school districts in order to hire new staff to offer more courses, but it also may impact flexibility for courses later on for both electives, career pathways, and also CTE access. Uh, one of the major issues of um, students going to uh, CTE programs is, are there high school re course requirements? And you know, if you need that extra, that fourth ELA credit, or you need that Algebra two credit, right? I hate talking credits. But if you have to have that, and if there's that's not available at the CTE program or the program they are in, then that could limit what you do for your access to CTE program. All right. So this is very interesting because I don't know where I stand on this necessarily because the way that I look at it, the way that the laws and the statutes are, there's required content and then there are required diploma standards. We already have health and physical education as requirements for content. Most schools, most high schools in the state of Maine require at least 1.5 years, 1.5 credits, whatever you want to call it. Oftentimes it's a year of physical education and then half a year of health or half credit of health. Most schools already do this. And so I think that the, that it is reasonable to say like, all right, if you want to make these into, um, graduation standards, just say 
a year of physical education and half a year or one credit of this and half a year of health or standards or meeting standards, right? Or, or, or standard equivalencies met. I, I, I think that they'll back away from the two year because that seems to be a pretty consistent thing. Like, well, that might be too much. But I'm also like, you know, if health and PE is done well, PE is not just about going and playing dodgeball and canoeing and basketball and um, badminton. It's way more than that. It's it's teaching about how you, not only your body functions and works, but also providing you skills, strategies, and means by which to maintain a healthy and physically physically active body and healthy body for continued longevity, both mentally, emotionally, and physically, obviously. It's not like PE was back in my day, which was just, they're going to go play a bunch of games. Now, maybe there are places that do that still, but that's not the intention of physical education or physical education requirement. Um, so PE is a content requirement and it's something that if you look at the health of our nation, is something that it really needs to be focused on. Is it enough for maker? Are, are we really willing to change the law in that to make it a graduation standard? And I'm looking forward to hearing what they have to say on that and what the conversation. This is one that I've been looking forward to hearing a lot about because um, whereas I wasn't sure about it at first, having been able to think about it more, I'm more like, well, so we're we're increasing the minimum requirements of what of, of to make sure that our students are engaged in this. And I know there are some countries uh, where I believe uh, either Denmark or Holland is one of them, where uh, every school year of the four years of high school, every year uh, physical education is required, and it's a graduation requirement. I, I could be outdated on that. Please don't quote me on that. I could search it, but as I've previously said, that would require work, and I'm a, and I'm not about that. But there are places that do require that, and is that worth it to us as a state of as as a state? What is our our state and health? Not not just understanding the health side of things, but also the physical education side of things, and. This is going to, I think this is going to be another interesting one that is worth paying attention to because this could have a real impact. It could have either a real impact or no impact. Like it could be, it could pass and they could change it to like a year and a half worth of credit, et cetera, and have absolutely zero impact because that's what most schools already do. Because um, a lot of local school districts, will have a policy or practices that these are required classes for our diploma. You know, the minimum main requirements are these, but our school requirements are a little bit more rigorous, a little bit more require more like physical education. And, and you, you cannot get our diploma without that. That's up to the local school board to decide to, to approve in the school districts to implement. So, if this were to become a law, would it have a real more significant impact? What it would do is it would um, it would say for those for those schools or those students who struggle to pass health or physical education, it would 
require schools and districts to be more and have more pathways and accommodations and interventions for students with needs not meeting the traditional physical education or health pathways. That's not a bad thing, in my opinion. That means we're getting to the heart of education, which is individualized, not institutionalized. And that's the week of March the 14th, March 14, 15, 16. They are busy, 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 to quote that awful dude from Frosty the Snowman. Uh, and after, so that a lot of new, new bills coming forward. Um, a couple of things just so that you are aware and to keep you all in the know there have been a few bills and i don't honestly remember if i've talked about them on this podcast yet uh, but there have been some votes in some of the bills so for example um uh, ld's i know i talked about some of these but ld 635 an act to allow retired law enforcement officer to serve as a school resource officer without affecting that officer's retirement retirement benefits ought not to pass. That was actually coming from labor and housing. Uh, I didn't actually mention that one, but that's just one for SROs to, I, I follow some other bills along the way. Anyway, uh, an act, LD 174, an act to return the name of the main community college system to the main technical college system, a divided report. Usually that means that the majorities ought to pass, the minorities ought not to pass. I don't have the breakdown of that yet, but if you want to know what the breakdown is, once it's available, I'll put it on our spreadsheet that uh, I use to track all the bills and all the information on there. LD 173, an act regarding the responsibility for technology instruction marketing costs by the main community college system ought not to pass. LD 64, an act to ensure in-state tuition for post-secondary students who are registered to vote in the state ought not to pass. And there are two others so far that I've been following, uh, not necessarily, they're, they're both from the transportation uh, committee. LD 125, an act to allow driver education instructors to administer driver's license road tests, ought not to pass. And finally, for, for today, a, a bill that when I saw it in the list of bill titles, I said, ooh, when is this coming out? And I, when I saw it get an LD number, I was like, yes, I want to follow this bill because in my core, down to the deepest soul of my being, I am and always will be a child, an immature child. LD-135, an act to require manure bags for horse-drawn vehicles. This is a real thing. This is a bill that was written. This was a bill that went before the Transportation Committee through public hearing. Had a work session on it. It was tabled. An act to require manure bags for horse-drawn vehicles was tabled. I don't want to see that table. I don't want to be anywhere near that table. I don't know what's in that table, but I can only imagine. All right. That's it for me on this particular podcast day. Uh, thank you very much for listening. As always, if you want to 
if you don't want to listen to any of this, just want to know where things are um, in terms of legislation, uh, I have a resource that's available to all of you. It's pinned on the social media pages. And I usually put it in the show notes as well. I might forget that. I miss it sometimes because this is all on me. So I do kind of everything right now. And um, I'm kind of like a manure bag for horse-drawn vehicles. I, I have a specific job to do, and I do it well, but sometimes there's so much work that it just spills over. And let me say that follow that along if you have any kind of thing, anything you want me to talk about or if there's anyone you want me to reach out to or possibly get information on or you would just send me a note to be like, hey, thanks for doing this or hey, you stink at this or hey, what? Whatever. I would love to hear from you. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you so very much for being with us all of this time and I appreciate all of you. I love you all for listening. Thank you so very much. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>